But I had in my mind that I wanted to go to something different, which was a twilight uh, ceremony. And, that, and I did. I was awake for that. That started at a quarter past three. And that was at Madhurabar. And uh, it was a really moving ceremony for me because Madhurabar is still actually country. And I was brought up in the country. And my dad used to take us kids to Anzac Day services. And uh, in the country, there are not as many people and there are not as many good speakers and the bands aren't usually quite as good as they are in the city. But there's an authenticity there that really touches you. And um, I'm so glad that I was, I was there. And as I was there, I was reflecting, just looking around at the people. And you know, most of those people wouldn't even think about going to church. But yet, the service was probably as close to a church service as any of them would ever attend. Why is that? Because they sang hymns. They prayed. And quite a few of the people, not all of them, but quite a few of the people around me, they said, Amen. And uh, that was quite touching uh, for me as a, as a Christian to see that there was solemnity and there was respect. And when a, a retired army padre prayed, there was quietness. There was nobody talking. The only sound was one little baby that got restless. Uh, there would have been perhaps um, probably four to five hundred people there. And of course that was repeated all over the nation. Who knows the full reasons, but Anzac Day is becoming more and more, perhaps the word popular is not the best word, but more and more people in our nation observe Anzac Day now than ever have before. Even though it's now well over a hundred years since the First World War began. We don't make a huge thing of Anzac Day at Ignite Life Church, but usually the Sunday before Anzac Day I like to focus on some issue or some context related to the war. Last Sunday, of course, being Easter Sunday, we had a pretty full schedule and so it wasn't even mentioned. But I have a book at home that was published in 19, sorry, in 2014 on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the First World War, written by an American theologian, a very fine theologian. And uh, it's not a book that made a lot of waves, it hasn't been commented on. I've never heard anybody in the church even make reference to it. I've never seen write-ups about it in the media, but it's a very thoroughly researched and well-argued book. And uh, I had a look at that and I did some other research and I decided that what I wanted to do was to actually talk about the religious aspects of the First World War because it changed everything. Much of the world that we experience today can actually be traced back to the experience of the First World War. 8.6 million people killed, 21.5 million people wounded, 
And of course, at the end of the war, the Spanish flu broke out. It killed 50 million people. That's enough to notice. Perhaps as much as 6% of the world's population perished in the First World War and during the Spanish flu epidemic, which just spread everywhere as World War I soldiers returned home. You don't hear politicians, you don't hear academics, you don't hear church people really talk about the religious context of that war. Perhaps it's because in the early 20th century, we were all Christian. In this country, virtually everybody would have said, yes, I'm a Christian, I belong to one of the mainstream denominations. And that was so in the United States, that was so in Great Britain, that was so even in Russia. In fact, prior to the First World War, about a quarter of the world's Christians lived in Russia. They were Orthodox. And uh, that might surprise you. A quarter of the world's population of Christians at that time lived in Russia. How that country has changed during the hundred years or so since the First World War. For me, I, I spent much of Anzac Day preparing this and then a lot of time yesterday and uh, there's just so much material I hardly know where to start. And in reading through this material I've just been gobsmacked over and over again at the whole religious environment that existed at the time and developed during the First World War. Let me share with you the last sentence of a book written by Philip Jenkins. This is the theologian I mentioned. It's called The Great and Holy War. How World War I changed religion and the world forever. The last sentence in his book reads like this. Only now, after a century, are we beginning to understand just how utterly that war destroyed one religious order and created another. Unbelievable. As many of you will know, my great-grandfather was in the Light Horse Brigade. He didn't see service in Gallipoli, um, but he was posted to the Sinai. And uh, he was there for a number of years. He was actually in, he ended up being discharged sick in 1919 because he got malaria. He was shot a couple of times. It wasn't um, being wounded that really forced him out of the army. It was malaria that forced him out of the army. And a lot of soldiers became ill with malaria and other tropical diseases. Interestingly, the First World War was primarily a Christian war. Christian Germany and Christian Russia were the two major, I don't know whether you'd call them protagonists, but they were two major uh, participants in the war. And those two countries lost the most uh, people as, uh, as casualties. But my grandfather and his two brothers enlisted, my uncle Stan 
he was in the, on the Western Front. He was a farrier, so he, he was right just behind the trenches, uh, reshoeing horses and mules. He, he didn't actually like mules very much by the time the war ended. He reckoned they were pretty stubborn, and I think he might have been kicked by one or two as he was trying to uh, reshoe them. My uh, other uncle, Uncle Bill, who was the youngest of, or their second youngest of four, four brothers, he uh, enlisted in, in not 1917, but I really don't know uh, what he did. My grandfather and uncles didn't speak a lot about the war, but my grandfather used to share some of his thoughts uh, with uh, us grandchildren from time to time, and I know I had a few conversations. But see, for him, for him, the war was about God, king and country. It's interesting that self didn't come into it. His own particular personal interests were not part of his thinking. He saw enlisting as a duty to God, to his king, and to his country. And he wasn't alone. Extensive research by Philip Jenkins, not only of official documentation, speeches and the like, but also of letters that soldiers rode home, led at least Philip Jenkins to conclude that by and large this was the view that soldiers on both sides held. With the exception of the Turks, and I'll speak about the Turks shortly. So they were in this war fighting for God, for their king and for their country. Philip Jenkins says World War I was primarily a Christian war, with the exception of the Turks, the Ottoman Empire that got caught up in the war as well. As you know, the Anzac story is a story that was forged on the beaches uh, of the Dardanelles in, in Turkey. And interestingly enough, the, the Turkish leader, Mustafa Kemal, he was later given the surname Ataturk. He was the general who successfully led uh, the Turks in the battle where so many Australians and New Zealanders were killed. He later became the first president of the Republic of, uh, of Turkey. And a very interesting character because he westernised Turkey. He did away with state-based religion and uh, he did away with the traditional dress, adopted Western-style dress, Western-style institutions. Very, very interesting to see how Turkey is now swinging back under the current president. Germany and Russia in particular regarded themselves as messianic nations destined to fulfil God's will in the secular realm. The war began as a clash of messianic visions and other states were drawn by alliances and they were also sort of brought into and they bought into the messianic rhetoric. Now as a little bit of a, an aside, I want to talk a little bit about... Do I want to do that yet? Yes, I do. Sorry. I want to talk a little bit about the Armenian Genocide. It's actually been in the news in the last couple of weeks because the Prime Minister upset 
the Armenian uh, citizens of Australia because he wouldn't refer to the genocide as a genocide. And for some reason, one and a half million people killed out of a population of two and a half million is not considered by some people to be a genocide. It's interesting how it started. Uh, when the Russians came down to uh, invade the area of the world in which the Turks lived, there were uh, Christian areas, and the Armenians, of course, were Christians. And uh, the Russians enlisted them. But interestingly, there were 40,000 Armenians who had joined the Turkish army. But what precipitated the genocide was the Turks, obviously because they were Muslim, they decided that for their own safety and well-being, they had to get rid of all of the Christians. And so the 40,000 Armenians in the Turkish army, they were put out of the army, and uh, hundreds of thousands of them were rounded up. Some were shot, some were hanged. There, I've seen photos of uh, them just hanging in the streets. Many of them died because... They were marched out into the desert with no food, no water, and prior to being marched out, many of them were stripped of all of their clothing. Estimates of the number who actually died vary from about 800,000 to 1.5 million. Uh, again, Philip Jenkins' very detailed research indicates it was at the higher end, probably around 1.5 million million. And depending on whose history you read, the total number of Armenians was up to two and a half million. Some people say it was less than that. But a lot were killed. Children were dying in the streets. But what precipitated it was the desire of the Turks to get all the Christian influence out because the Christians became their enemy. Well, you don't need me to tell you that it was a pretty terrible war. Even the, the notion that it was a great war, the war to end all wars, has an end times flavour, an apocalyptic flavour. Of course, uh, in Greek, the, the, the name... Was it Hebrew? David, you might have to help me here. But the name for Revelation is the Apocalyptica, I think. It's the Greek? Yeah. So that's where this whole idea of the um, Apocalypse comes from. And it refers to a style of writing, a style of literature. But reading through soldiers' letters, reading through speeches of politicians of the day, the apocalyptic vision became a very, very strong vision. It was one that was held by the Russians, the Germans, and uh, the English and the French and the Italians, and even here in Australia and New Zealand, we took it on board as well. Of course, initially it was believed that the war wouldn't last. But it got worse and worse and worse. By 1917, People were aghast at the cost of the world, uh, at the cost of the war. 
There was a study Bible produced by um, Schofield. Cyrus Schofield was his name. And uh, he was the one, by the way, who introduced the idea of the rapture. Uh, we're going to talk about that when I deal with uh, the book of Revelation. I'll probably start that in late May. It was him who really popularised this idea that we'd be raptured out before or sometime during or after the millennial rule. The, um, oh, help me. Tribulation. Sorry, the tribulation. Um, so it was, it was Cyrus Schofield, an American, who kind of popularised that idea. But you see, it's easy to imagine, isn't it, particularly for people in Europe who are caught up in this dreadful fighting, that they thought the world was coming to an end. And that soldiers on both sides thought that they were fighting in the last battle portrayed in the book of Revelation. The signs of the end times were there for all to see. The slaughter on the Western Front. The thousands upon thousands who died. Who were maimed. Either because they were shot or they were gassed. There were two holy revolution, two revolutions in holy Russia. A really important event for the Catholic Church and one that still has a significant influence on Catholic thinking today was a vision of the Virgin Mary at a village by the name of Fatima in Portugal where three young children saw a vision of the Virgin Mary. She appeared to them three times. And by the way, there are lots and lots of stories about the appearance of angels. Uh, there are also novels written about it. And uh, some people, of course, couldn't tell the difference between fiction and, uh, and fact. But the key, and, and I'm not saying that these kids never saw the Virgin Mary. I, I don't necessarily believe that at all. Because they, they saw her three times. And... Uh, she gave them instruction to pray for the sin of the world. And uh, see, this has become so important in Catholic thinking since the First World War. And uh, their means of praying, of course, was to pray through the rosary and then to add a prayer at the end about the sin of the world and imploring through Mary, of course, but imploring that the Lord move on the hearts of men and turn them from their sin. Towards the end of uh, 1917, the Turks were defeated in Palestine and that was seen as a victory of Christendom over uh, Islam. But then importantly, General Sir Edmund Allenby entered Jerusalem in 1917, which was held by the Turks. It was part of the Ottoman Empire at that time. And there was indeed a battle at Megiddo, which many say is where the Battle of Armageddon would take place. And many at the time thought this was the Battle of Armageddon. He succeeded in uh, 1918. Cyrus Schofield, who wrote the study Bible that I mentioned a little earlier, called Allenby's success a prophetic sign. The trouble is... 
Jesus didn't come back. Jesus didn't come back. So the hopes of many thousands, perhaps millions, didn't come to fruition. By 1918, surrounded by the legions of bereaved and the millions of maimed, of the maimed, it seemed blasphemous to speak of bringing the kingdom of God or living in the end times. So can you imagine, most of the world's population had come to believe that this was the end of human history and that Jesus was coming back. 8.6 million people killed. 21.5 million wounded, many who died or who couldn't function properly <coughs> after the war. And then after the war, 50 million killed through the flu. And I did some research on whether, whether or not people thought there was a religious significance attached to the flu ep epidemic. And yes, there was. In fact, in some places, denominations had official positions on it. And they didn't all agree, but there was a significant portion of the Christian population who believed that it was God's punishment for sin. Now, we can argue whether that was a right or a wrong interpretation. I don't believe that God does things like that in um, New Testament times. But nevertheless, if you go back to that time, if you had had that experience, and then you saw millions upon millions of people die after the war, you just might come to the same conclusion that many others did. What were the reactions? Some renounced their hopes. They gave up on the idea that somehow or other this was the war to end all wars, that somehow or other this was the last ever conflict on earth before the return of Jesus. But they retained their faith. Millions upon millions of others, particularly in Europe, they gave up on Christianity altogether. And hence we've seen massive secularisation of Europe ever since. And that Europe is far more secularised, Western Europe I'm talking about in particular, is far more secularised than North America or Australasia or Africa, most other parts of the planet. Philip Jenkins argues that that was a reaction to the First World War. Of course, it wasn't too long after that that Nazism uh, rose up, particularly in Germany, and uh, communism in other parts of Europe. Germany and Russia, by 1930, claimed a vanguard role in new messianic movements seeking global dominance. And Philip Jenkins says that was the genesis of World War II. There were other things at play. Uh, Germany was treated pretty badly at the Treaty of Versailles. So too was Turkey, by the way, but um, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, he actually started a bit of a revolution and actually had the terms of, his, uh, of the Turkish agreement changed so it was less draconian. But the Germans didn't, and of course they suffered massive 
inflation as a result of having to pay the bill. The French in particular were absolutely committed to making the Germans pay. And believe it or not, Germany only completed those First World War reparation payments about five years ago. Not that long. John Maynard Keynes, whom some would say was the greatest economist of all times, who was one of the English representatives at Versailles, remarked that the outcome of the Versailles Treaty would be another world war. And how right he turned out to be. So it wasn't just religious influence at play here. There were other things going on in the background as well. Uh, in the Middle East, the First World War was near terminal for Christianity because there were attempts to wipe out the Armenians, the Greeks who were Orthodox, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans and the Maronites. And of course there are just tiny remnants of those groups left living in the world today and many of them are under threat by Islamic groups of one kind or another. Later in Russia, the Orthodox Christians were just about wiped out by persecution. And Russia, of course, became a massive communist influence. And under communism, of course, there is no religion. The only religion you can have under communist is to, under communism, is to worship the party. And officially there is no God. So Russia was massively transformed from a nation where a quarter of the world's Christians lived to a nation perhaps more anti-religion than most others on earth. Historian Geoffrey Wheatcroft concluded the First World War changed everything. Without it, there would have been no Russian Revolution, no Third Reich, and almost certainly no Jewish state. So that war changed just about everything for Christians. As it did for Muslims as well, the Ottoman Empire was no more. It was regarded as a caliphate. It was utterly destroyed. In India, Muslims and Hindus asserted themselves. And with the British partition of India after the Second World War, they could no longer afford to maintain India. It was partitioned into India, which was primarily Hindu, and Pakistan, which were both West and East Pakistan, by the way, East Pakistan now being Bangladesh. Uh, Pakistan was primarily Muslim. In the fighting that ensued in 1947, uh, um, over a million people were killed, about one, somewhere between one and two million people were killed, we don't know for sure. Records weren't all that good. 75,000 women were raped. If you don't mind me saying these pregnant women had their breasts cut off and their living babies were ripped from their wombs. This is what happens in our world. If you don't think it happens today, I have a friend who now lives in Canberra who's a refugee from Sierra Leone and exactly the same thing happened in that country. And that's only 20 years ago. The war changed everything.
But there's some good news on the horizon. Because in some parts of the world, a revival of Christian faith emerged. And uh, during the First World War and thereafter, those who were held strong to their faith found themselves in this growing movement of Pentecostal and Evangelical churches, especially in Africa. If you look at the data today, you'll see that Christianity appears to be dying out in what we might loosely call the West, in Western Europe, in North America, in places like Australia and New Zealand. Every time we have a census, fewer and fewer people say they are aligned with one of the Christian denominations. The same is happening in North America, Canada and the United States. It's happening in most of Europe as well. But Christianity is growing in a crazy way in Africa and in Latin America as well. In South America, primarily through the Catholic Church as charismatic movements sweep through the church. And in Africa, with the very, very rapid growth of uh, Pentecostal and Evangelical churches. So the world map is changing as far as Christianity is concerned, but it is not actually a dying religion, even though it would appear to be dying out altogether. If you look at data in the countries that used to be the major Christian countries. <coughs> All of this as a result of a war that ended a hundred years ago. All of this as the result of a war that ended a hundred years ago. There's much, much more that I could relate, but obviously we don't want to spend any more time on it. It was a, a gruesome period in history, and of course, despite what some people thought, it wasn't a war that would end all wars, and in 21 years, just 21 years later, the world was at war again. So perhaps it's no accident that Anzac Day services are becoming, in a sense, more Christian-oriented today. People seem to be accepting the old hymns that were sung. People are accepting prayers. And people are reverencing those who with good hearts and good intentions volunteered to fight in that war. And of course many have fought in wars since then. We have, I believe, about 1,900 Defence Force personnel serving in various parts of the world today. Some in peacekeeping roles, some are actually involved in skirmishes of one kind or another. And uh, so really, since the end of the 19th century, since about the 1880s, we have been involved in wars and skirmishes almost constantly. The late 19th century and the 20th century perhaps are marked by, by war. We're going to invite the um, kids back in because we're going to sing two national anthems in a moment and uh, then we'll do communion. I want to just say a couple of words about, could someone um, 
actually let them know that it's time to come back. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Just a word or two about the, uh, the national anthems. It's uh, fairly common now to sing the first verse of both at uh, Anzac Day services. Um, I actually went to two. I went to a, an Anzac Day service on, um, on Wednesday of the school. I'm on a school board. And uh, they did a very moving ceremony on, on uh, Wednesday morning. And then, of course, on Thursday afternoon at Madhurabar. It's kind of interesting that the national anthems of New Zealand and Australia were written at around about the same time. In the case of New Zealand, God Defend New Zealand, written by Thomas Bracken in 1876, or at least it was first published in one of his newspapers in that year. And it received equal status with God Save the Queen in New Zealand in 1977. Advanced Australia Fair was written by Peter Dodds McCormick and that was first published in 1878. It replaced God Save the Queen in 1984 except when members of the royal family are present. So shortly we're going to invite you to stand and to sing the first verse, first verse of each of those uh, national anthems. And there's a few people here who are going to sing in Māori for us. So we'll sing the first verse in Māori, then we'll sing it in English, and then we'll sing the first verse in Australia Fair. Well, I want to read for you two verses from these, or the poems on which these national anthems are based, that we don't actually hear. In the case of New Zealand, I believe uh, verse 3 of God Defend New Zealand is not actually part of the official anthem. Uh, and in Australia, we only actually sing verse uh, 1 and 3. The other verses, we kind of pretend they don't exist. Um, if you do read all the verses, it gives rather different meaning to verse 3, which we regularly sing along with verse 1. Um, but uh, such, such is the way that the political system kind of meddles with, with history. Eh? So I, I want to read verse 3 from the New Zealand, or from the poem on which the New Zealand uh, National Anthem uh, is based. Verse 3 reads this, Peace, not war, shall be our boast. But should foes assail our coast, make us then a mighty host. God defend our free land. Lord of battles in thy might, put our enemies to flight. Let our cause be just and right. God defend New Zealand. They don't sing that anymore. In the case of Australia, at the fifth verse, should foreign foe or sight our coast or dare a foot to land, will rouse to arm like sires of yore to guard our native strand. Britannia then shall surely know beyond white oceans roll her son in fair Australia's land shall keep a British soul in joyful strains and let us sing advance Australia fair. Now let me suggest that we're probably in a rather different battle today. It's a battle which not, not against flesh and blood, but a battle against principalities and powers.